We're continuing our reading of Krishna, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, and we're taking up where we left off at... I'll give it back at the end. Uh, cha- uh, Krishna book, chapter number 85. This is entitled, Spiritual Instruction for Vasudev and the Return of the Six Dead Sons of Devaki by Lord Krishna. It is a Vedic custom that the junior members of the family should offer respects to the elders every morning. The children or disciples especially should offer their respects to their parents or spiritual master in the morning. In pursuance of this Vedic principle, Lord Krishna and Balaram used to offer their obeisances to their parents, Vasudeva and Devaki. One day after having returned from the sacrificial performances at Kurukshetra, when Lord Krishna and Balaram went to offer their respects to Vasudeva, Vasudeva took the opportunity to appreciate the exalted position of his two sons. Vasudeva had the opportunity to understand the position of Krishna and from the great sages who had assembled in their arena of sacrifice. Not only did he hear from the sages, but on many occasions he actually experienced that Krishna and Balaram were not ordinary human beings, but were very extraordinary. Thus he believed the words of the sages that his sons, Krishna and Balaram, were the supreme personality of Godhead. With firm faith in his sons, he addressed them thus, my dear Krishna, you are Sakchitananda Vigraha, Supreme Personality of Godhead. And my dear Balaram, you are Sankartana, the master of all mystic powers. Therefore, I have now understood that you are eternal. Both of you are transcendental to this material manifestation and to its cause, the Supreme Person Mahavishnu. You are the original controller of all. You are the resting place of this cosmic manifestation. You are its creator, and you are also its its creative ingredients. You are the master of this cosmic manifestation, and actually this manifestation is created for your pastimes only. The different material phases that are manifest from the beginning to the end of the cosmos under different formulas of time are also yourself, because you are both the cause and effect of this manifestation. The two features of this material world, the predominator and the predominated, are also you, and you are the supreme transcendental controller who stands above them. Therefore, you are beyond the perception of our senses. You are the supreme soul, unborn and unchanging. You are not affected by the six kinds of transformations which occur in the material body. The wonderful varieties of this material world are also created by you, and you have entered as the super soul into all of them, down to the atom. You are the vital force of all these manifestations and also their supreme cognition. As such, you are the maintainer of everything. The vital force, the life principle in everything, and the creative force derived from it are not acting independently but are dependent upon you, the supreme person behind these forces. Without your will, they cannot work. Material energy has no cognizance. It cannot without being agitated by you. Because the material nature is dependent upon you, the living entities can 
only attempt to act, but without your sanction and will, they cannot perform anything or achieve the results they desire. The original energy is only an emanation from you. My dear Lord, the shining of the moon, the heat of fire, the rays of the sun, the glittering of the stars, and the electric lightning, which are all manifested as very powerful, are well as well as the gravity of the mountains and the energy and fragrance of the earth, all are different manifestations of you. The pure taste of water, the water itself, and the vital force which maintains <clears throat> all life are all the features of your Lordship. My dear Lord, although the forces of the senses, the mental power of thinking, willing, and feeling, and the strength, movement, and growth of the body appear to be performed by different movements of the airs within the body. They are all ultimately manifestations of your energy. The vast expanse of outer space rests in you. The vibration of the sky, its thunder, the supreme sound, omkar, and the arrangement of different words to distinguish one thing from another are all symbolic representations of you. The senses, the controllers of the senses, and the acquisition of knowledge, which is the purpose of the senses, as well as the subject matter of knowledge, are all you. The resolution of intelligence and the sharp memory of the living entity are also you. You are the egoistic, egoistic principle of ignorance, which is the cause of this material world. The egoistic principle of passion, which the cause of the senses and the principle of goodness which is the origin of the different controlling deities in this material world the illusory energy or maya which is the cause of the conditioned soul's perpetual transmigration from one form to another is you my original cause of all causes exactly as the earth is the original cause of different kinds of trees and similar varieties of manifestation as the earth is present in everything, so you present, you are present throughout this material manifestation as the supersoul. You are the supreme cause of all causes, the eternal principle. Everything, in fact, is a manifestation of your one energy. The three qualities of material nature, sattva, rajas, and tamas, and the result of their interaction are linked up with you by your agency of yoga maya. They are supposed to be independent, Actually, the total material energy rests upon you, the Supersoul. Since you are the supreme cause of everything, the interaction of the material manifestation, birth, growth, existence, transformation, deterioration, and annihilation are all absent in you. Your supreme energy, Yogamaya, is acting in variegated manifestations, but because Yogamaya is your energy, you are therefore present. In the Bhagavad Gita, this fact is very nicely explained in the ninth chapter, wherein the Lord says, In my impersonal form, spread all over the material energy. Everything is resting in me, but I am not there. This very statement is also given by Vasudev. <clears throat> to say that the Lord is not present everywhere means that he is aloof from everything, although his energy is acting everywhere. This can be understood by a crude example. In a big establishment, the energy or the organization of the supreme boss is working in every nook and corner of the business and that does not mean the original but that does not mean that but that does not mean the original proprietor is present there although in 
every department the presence of the proprietors felt by the workers. The physical, abs uh, the physical presence of the proprietor in every department is formality only. Actually, his energy is working everywhere. Similarly, the omnipresence of the Supreme Personality of God is felt in the action of his energies. Therefore, the philosophy of inconceivable simultaneous oneness and difference from the Supreme Lord is confirmed everywhere. The Lord is one, but his energies are diverse. <clears throat> Vasudev said, This material world is like a great flowing river, and it's so the three mo material modes of nature, goodness, passion, <clears throat> and ignorance. This material body, as well as the senses, the faculties of thinking, feeling, and stages of distress, happiness, attachment, and lust, are all different products of these three qualities of nature. The foolish person who cannot realize your transcendental identity above all these material reactions continues in the entanglement of activity and is subjected to the continuous process of birth and death without a chance of being freed. This is confirmed in a different way by the Lord in the fourth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. There it is who knows the appearance and activities of the Supreme Lord Krishna is free from the clutches of material nature and goes back home back to Godhead. Therefore, Krishna's transcendental name, form, activities, and qualities are not products of this material nature. My dear Lord, Vasudev continued, despite all these defects of the conditioned soul, if someone somehow or other comes in contact with devotional service, he achieves the civilized form of body with develop, he, he achieves the civilized human form of body <clears throat> with developed consciousness and thereby becomes capable of executing further progress in devotional service. And yet, illusioned by the external energy, people generally do not utilize the advantage of the human form of life. Thus, they miss the chance of eternal and unnecessarily spoil the progress they have made after thousands of births. <clears throat> In the bodily concept of life, due to false egotism, one is attached to the offspring of the body, and thus every life is entrapped by false relationships and false affection. The whole world is moving under false impression and suffering in material bondage. I know that neither of you is my son, both of you are the chief and progenitor, the personality of Godhead, the Purusha, with Pradhan. Appeared on the surface of this globe to minimize the burden of the world by killing the Chatriya kings who are unnecessarily increasing their strength. You have already informed me about this in the past. My dear Lord, you are the shelter of the surrendered souls the supreme well-wisher of the meek and humble. I am therefore taking shelter of your lotus feet, which alone can give one liberation from the entanglement of material existence. 
For a long time I have simply considered this body to be myself. And although you are the Supreme Personality of Godhead, I have considered you my son, my dear Lord. At the very moment when you first appeared in Kanksa's prison house, to me that you were the Supreme Personality of Godhead and that you had descended for the protection of the principles of religion, as well as the destruction of the unfaithful. Although unborn, you descend in every millennium to execute your mission. <clears throat> My dear Lord, <clears throat> as in the sky there are many forms appearing and disappearing, you also appear in many eternal forms and then disappear. Who therefore can understand your pastimes or the mystery of your appearance and disappearance? Our only business should be to glorify your supreme greatness. <clears throat> when Vasudeva was addressing his divine sons in that way, Lord Krishna and Balaram were smiling because they are very affectionate. <clears throat> because they are they are very affectionate to their devotees, they accepted all the appreciation of Vasudeva with a kindly, smiling attitude. Krishna then confirmed all of Vasudeva's statements as follows. My dear father, whatever you may say, we are, after all, your sons. What you have said about us is certainly a highly philosophical understanding of spiritual knowledge. I accept it in toto, without exception. Vasudeva was in complete perfection of life in considering Lord Krishna and Balaram to be his sons. But because the sages assembled in a place of pilgrimage at Kurukshetra <clears throat> had spoken about the Lord as the supreme cause of everything, Vasudeva simply repeated out of his love for Krishna and Balaram. Lord Krishna did not wish to detract from his relationship with Vasudeva as father and son. Therefore, in the very beginning of his reply, he accepted the fact that he is the eternal son of Vasudeva and that Vasudeva is the eternal father of Krishna. After this, Lord Krishna informed his father of the spiritual identity of all living entities. He continued, My dear father, everyone and everything, including me and my brother Balaram, as well as all the inhabitants of the city of Dwarka and the whole cosmic manifestation, are exactly as you have already explained but all of us are also qualitatively one. Lord Krishna intended for Vasudeva to see everything with the vision of a Mahabhagavata, a first-class devotee, who sees that all living entities are part and parcel of the Supreme Lord, and that the Supreme Lord is situated in everyone's heart. In fact, every living entity has a spiritual identity, but in contact with material existence, he becomes influenced by the material modes of nature. He becomes covered by the concept of bodily life, forgetting that his spirit soul is of the same quality as the Supreme Personality of Godhead. One mistakenly considers one's individual, mistakenly considers one individual to be different from another simply because of their bodily covering their material bodily coverings. Because of differences between bodies, the spirit soul appears before us differently. Lord Krishna then gave it.
terms of the five material elements. The total material elements, namely sky, air, fire, water, and earth, are present in everything in the material world, whether, it, whether in a pot, or in a mountain, or in trees, or in an earring. These five elements are present in everything, in different proportions, in quantities. A mountain is a gigantic form of the combination of these five elements, and a small earthen pot is made of the same, same elements, but in a smaller quantity. Therefore, all material items, although the diff in different shapes, different quantities, are of the same ingredients. Similarly, the living ent entities, beginning from Lord Krishna, including millions of Vishnu forms, and also the living entities in different forms, from Brahma down to the small ant, are all of the same spiritual quality. Some are in great, great quantity, and some are small. But qualitative, some are great in quantity and some are small, but qualitatively they are of the same nature. It is there conf therefore confirmed in the Upanishads that Krishna, or the Supreme Lord, is the chief among all living entities and that he maintains them and supplies them with all necessities. Anyone who knows this philosophy is in perfect knowledge. The Vedic version, Tat Tvam Asi, Thou art the same, means not that everyone is God, but that everyone is qualitatively of the same nature as God. After hearing Krishna speak the entire philosophy of spiritual life in an abbreviated summation, Vasudeva was exceedingly pleased with his son. Being thus elated, he could not speak, but remained silent. In the meantime, Devaki, the mother of Lord Krishna, sat by the side of her husband. Previously she had heard that Krishna and Balaram were so kind to their teacher that they had brought back the teacher's dead son from the clutches of the superintendent of death, Yamaraj. Since she had heard of this incident, she had also been thinking of her own sons who were killed by Kangsa. And while remembering them, she was overwhelmed grief. Out of compassion for her dead sons, Devaki appealed to Lord Krishna and Balaram thus, My dear Balaram, your very name suggests that you give all pleasure and all strength to everyone. Your unlimited potency is beyond the reach of our minds and words. And my dear Krishna, you are the master of all mystic yogis. I know that you are the master of the prajapatis, like Brahma and his assistants, and you were also, and you were, and you were the the original personality of Godhead, Narayana. I also know for certain that you have descended to annihilate all kinds of miscreants who have been misled in the course of time. They have lost control of their minds and senses, have fallen from the quality of goodness, and have deliberately neglected the direction of the revealed scripture by living a life of extravagance and impudence. You have descended on the earth to minimize the burden of the world by killing such miscreant rulers. My dear Krishna, I know that Mahavishnu, who is lying in the causal ocean of the cosmic manifestation and who is the 
depths of this whole creation is simply an expansion of your plenary portion. The creation, maintenance, and annihilation of this cosmic manifestation are effected only by your plenary portion. I therefore take shelter of you without reservation. I have heard that when you wanted to re reward their te your teacher, Sandipani Muni, he, and he asked you to give back his dead son, to bring back his dead son, you and Balaram immediately brought him from the custody of Yamaraj, although he had been dead for a very long time. By this act, I understand you to be the supreme master of all mystic yogis. I therefore ask you to fulfill my desire in the same way. In other words, I am asking you to bring back all my sons who were killed by Kamsa. Upon your bringing them back, my heart will be content, and it will be a great pleasure for me to see them once. Just to see them once. Inconvenience is regretted. After hearing their mother speak in this way, Lord Balaram and Krishna immediately called for the assistance of Yoga Maya and the planetary system known as Sutila. Formerly, in his incarnation of Vamana, the Supreme Personality of Godhead had been satisfied by the king of the demons, Bali Maharaj, who donated to him everything he had. Bali Maharaj was then given the whole of Sutila for his residence and kingdom. Now when this great devotee, Bali Maharaj, saw that Lord Balaram and Krishna had come to his planet, he immediately merged in an ocean of happiness. As soon as he saw Lord Krishna and Balaram in his presence, he and all his family members stood up from their seats and bowed down at the lotus feet of the lords. Bali Maharaj offered Lord Krishna and Balaram the best seat he had in his possession, and when both lords were seated comfortably, he began to wash their lotus feet. He then sprinkled the water on his head and on the heads of his family members. The water used to wash the lotus feet of Krishna Balaram can purify even the greatest demigods, such as Lord Brahma. After this, Bali Maharaj brought valuable garments, ornaments, sandalwood pulp, beetle nuts, lamps, and various nectarian foods. And along with his family members, he worshipped the Lord's according to the regulative principles, and offered his riches and body unto their lotus feet. The King Bali was feeling such transcendental pleasure that he repeatedly grasped the Lord's lotus feet and kept them on his chest. And sometimes he put them on top of his head. In this way he felt transcendental bliss. Tears of love and affection began to flow from his eyes, and all his bodily hairs stood on end. He began to prayers to the lords in a voice which choked intermittently. My Lord Balaram, you are the original Anantadev. You are so great that Anantadev, Shesha, and other transcendental forms have originally emanated from you. You, Lord Krishna, are the original personality of Godhead with an eternal form that is all blissful and full of complete knowledge. You are the creator of the whole world. You are the original initiator and propounder of the systems of Jnana Yoga and Bhakti Yoga. You are the Supreme Brahman, the original personality of Godhead. I therefore 
with all respect, to offer my obeisances unto both of you. My dear lords, it is very difficult for the living entities to get to see you, yet when you are merciful upon your devotees, you are easy for them to see. As such, only out of your causeless mercy have you agreed to come here and be visible to us, who are generally influenced by the qualities of ignorance and passion. My dear Lord, we belong to the Daitya, or demon category. The demons are demoniac persons, the Gandharvas, the Siddhas, the Vidyadaras, the Karnas, the Yakshas, the Rakshasas, the Pishashas, the ghosts and the hobgoblins, are by nature incapable of worshipping you or becoming your devotees. Instead of becoming your devotees, they are simply impediments on the path of devotion. But you are the Supreme Personality of Godhead, representing all the Vedas, and are situated in the mode of uncontaminated goodness. Your position is always transcendental. For this reason, some of us, although born of the modes of passion and ignorance, have taken shelter of your lotus feet and have become devotees. Some of us are actually pure devotees, and some of us have taken shelter of your lotus feet because we desire to gain something from devotion. By your causeless mercy only, <clears throat> we demons in direct contact with your personality. By your causeless mercy only are we demons in direct contact with your personality. This contact is not possible even for the great demigods. No one knows how you act through your yogamaya potency. Even demigods cannot calculate the expanse of the activities of your internal potency, so how is it possible for us to know it? I therefore place my humble prayers before you. Please be kind to me, who am fully <coughs> surrendered unto you, and favor me with your causeless mercy, so that I may simply remember your lotus feet birth after birth. <coughs> my only ambition is that I may live alone, just like the Paramahamsas who travel alone here and there, peace of mind, depending simply upon your lotus feet. I also desire that if I have no, that I have to associate with anyone, I may associate only with your pure devotees and no one else, for your pure devotees are always well-wishers of all living entities. My dear Lord, you are the supreme master and director of the whole world. Please therefore engage me in your service and let me thus become free from all material nations. You can purify me in that way, because if someone engages himself in the loving service of your lordship, he is all kinds of regulative principles enjoined in the Vedas. The word Paramahamsa mentioned here means the supreme swan. It is said that the swan can draw milk from a mixture of milk and water. It can take only the milk portion and reject the watery portion. Similarly, a person who can draw out the spiritual portion from this material world and who can live alone, depending only on the Supreme Spirit, not on the material world, is called a Paramahamsa. Padre Narayan Marsh um, told me that he always wondered about how a swan could do that, or if it was mythology or whatever. And then he said he met this biologist from the University of Michigan. And he asked him about it, uh, and or somehow it came up. And the uh, the scientist said that the swan has an enzyme that he emits in his beak. And if he drinks uh, milk, he coagulates the milk and then um, is able to swallow the milk portion and the, the water portion goes outside of his beak.
Go blue. Okay. When one achieves the Paramahamsa platform, he is no longer under the regulative principles of the Vedic injunctions. A Paramahamsa accepts only the association of pure devotees and rejects others who are too much materially addicted. In other words, those who are materially addicted cannot understand the value of the Paramahamsa, but those who are fortunate, who are advanced in a spiritual sense, take shelter of the Paramahamsa and successfully complete the mission of human life. After Lord Krishna heard the prayers of Bali Maharaj, he spoke as follows. My dear King of the Demons, in the millennium of Swayambhuvamanu, the Prajapati known as Marichi begot six sons, all demigods, in the womb of his wife, Urna. Once upon a time, Lord Brahma became captivated by the beauty of his daughter and was following her, impelled by sex desire. At that time, these six demigods looked at the action of Lord Brahma with abhorrence. <coughs> this criticism of Brahma's action by the demigods constituted a great offense on their part. And for this reason, they were condemned to take birth as the sons of the demon Hiranyakashipu. <clears throat> These sons of Hiranyakashipu were thereafter put into the womb of Mother Devaki. And as soon as they took birth, took their birth, Kamsa killed them one after another. My dear king of the demons, Mother Devaki is anxious to see these six dead sons again. And she is very much aggrieved on account of their early death at the hand of Kamsa. I know that all of them are living with you. I have decided to take them with me to pacify my mother, Devaki. After seeing my mother, all six of these conditioned souls will be liberated. And in great pleasure, they will be transferred to their original planet. The names of these six conditioned souls are as follows. Smara, Udgita, Parishvanga, Patanga, Shudabrit, and Grini, Grini. They will be reinstated in their former, former position as demigods. <clears throat> After thus informing the king of the demons, Krishna stopped speaking, and Bali Maharaj understood the Lord's purpose. He duly worshipped the Lord, and thereafter, Lord Krishna and Lord Balaram took away the six conditioned souls and returned to the city of Dwarka, where Lord Krishna brought them as little babies before his mother, Devaki. Mother Devaki was overwhelmed with joy, so ecstatic in motherly feeling that milk immediately began to flow from, from her breasts, and she fed the babies with great satisfaction. She took them on her lap again and again, smelling their heads and thinking, I have gotten my lost children back. For the time being, she was overpowered by the energy of Vishnu, and in great motherly affection, she enjoyed the company of her lost children. The milk from the breasts of Devaki was transcendental, nectar, because the same milk had been sucked by Lord Krishna. As such, the babies who sucked the breasts of Devakiji, which had touched the body of Lord Krishna, became immediately, immediately became self-realized persons. The babies therefore began to offer their obeisances unto Lord Krishna, Balaram, and their father, 
and their mother Devaki. After this, they were immediately transferred to the respective heavenly planets. Devaki was stunned with wonder that her dead children had come back and had again been transferred to the respective planets. She could adjust the events only by thinking that Lord Krishna had performed anything, can perform anything wonderful in his pastimes because his potencies are all inconceivable. Without accepting the inconceivable, unlimited potencies of the Lord, one cannot understand that Lord Krishna is the Supreme Soul. By his unlimited potencies, he performs unlimited pastimes, and no one can describe them in full, nor can anyone know them all. Sutta Goswami speaking Srimad Bhagavatam before the sages of Naimisharanya, headed by Shonakarishi, gave his verdict in this connection as follows. Great sages, please understand that the transcendental pastimes of Lord Krishna are all eternal. They are not ordinary narrations of historical incidents. Such narrations are identical with the Supreme Personality of Godhead Himself. Anyone, therefore, who hears such narrations of the Lord's pastimes is immediately freed from the contamination of material existence. And those who are pure devotees enjoy these narrations as nectar entering into their ears. Such narrations were spoken by Shukadeva Goswami, the exalted son of Vyasadeva, and anyone who hears them, as well as anyone who repeats them for the hearing of others, becomes Krishna conscious. And only the Krishna conscious persons are eligible to go back home, back to Godhead. Thus ends the Bhaktivedanta purports of the 85th chapter of Krishna, spiritual instruction of, for Vasudeva and the return of the six dead sons of Devaki by Lord Krishna. The six sons were supposed to be born as sons of Hiranyakashipu according to the curse. So then why did they took birth from Devaki's womb and why were they killed? To be killed by by Hiran by Kamsa. Here, I'll read it again. My dear Lord, after Lord Krishna heard the prayers of Bali Maharaj, he spoke as follows. My dear King of the Demons, in the millennium of Swayambhuvamanu, you're finding the verse number, right? And then, After Lord Krishna heard the prayers of Bali Maharaj, he spoke as follows. My dear King of the Demons, in the millennium of Swayambhuvamanu, the Prajapati known as Marichi begot six sons all demigods in the womb of his wife Urna. Once upon a time Lord Brahma became captivated by the beauty of his daughter and was following her impelled by sex desire at that six demigods looked at the action of Lord Brahma with abhorrence. 
This criticism of Brahma's action by the demigods constituted a great offense on their part. And for this reason, they were condemned to take birth as the sons of the demon Hiranyakashipu. So far, so good, right? I mean, not like good, good, but we understand. These sons of Hiranyakashipu were thereafter put into the womb of Mother Devaki, and as soon as they took birth, their birth, Kamsa killed them one after another. My dear king of the demons, Mother Devaki is very anxious to see these six dead sons again, and she's very much aggrieved on the account of their early death at the hand of Kamsa. Now there's more commentary on this in the first part of the 10th canto, and also I just want to see in the, mm -hmm. the verse here. Mm -hmm. Probably goes into, well at least Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur goes into detail about these six sons represent Kam, Krod, Lob, Mada, Moha, Matsarya. And that um, they, in the, in the unfolding past of Krishna's appearance, they have to be removed before one can actually see Krishna or before Krishna will appear in one's life. And uh, Prabhupada goes on to explain there that <coughs> Devaki <coughs> was living in fear constantly. So he said, because uh, the material world, <coughs> we, he's, he says, we should also be afraid of the material world. And if we have sufficient fear of the material world, then we'll be able to conquer over these six. the representative there. The mechanics of the whole thing is that they were cursed in the way that's described here, here in Nikashipu, and then um, Devaki, so they would be killed. But then the idea was that they'd be liberated. I mean, that's, I'm just restating the obvious, but that's that was the circuitous route that they took in order to get back to the heavenly planets after laughing at Lord Brahma. Did you find it? Well, anyway, if you want to know more, if somebody wants to grab the 10-1 out of Maharaj's room. I'm not looking at any one person except for Pranchakaruna. And his name indicates how surrendered he is. <laughs> I don't know if that helped you at all. You said that they took birth from Hiranyakashipu as the six enemies, and then in their next birth, they were then. In the next birth. Yeah. Okay. And then after that, they were killed by Kamsa, and then they finally got liberation. And if we get the tenth count of first part within the next, say, 35 seconds, I can read you a short section in that, unless anybody objects. You're looking at me like I'm going to reject. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama. Rama, Rama. Rama. 
Rama Rama Hare Hare so much to Karuna Prabhu. <laughs> Look, somebody's been marking this. Some sage has been reading this. Okay. First Canto Part 1 and a lot of little notes in here. Oh yeah, this is from when we read it together. I think that uh, Prosperity's in here. Well, a lot of flipping going on down there, but no hits, right? Okay. Just to save time. Rishi, 59, and 122, 123. Okay. Everyone okay? Yes. <coughs> this is from 10, 134. When Kamsa controlling the reins of the horse. Okay. Uh, the omen spoke of Ashtamogarbha, referring to the eighth pregnancy but did not clearly say whether the child was to be a son or a daughter, which is interesting because later on the argument is made, and we heard it, that I said it was said to be a son, not a daughter. That was one of the things that was confusing to Kamsa. Even if Kamsa were to see that the eighth child was a daughter, he should have no doubt that the child was to him. According to the Vishwakosh Dictionary, the word karba means embryo and also arba or child. Kamsa was affectionate toward his sister and therefore he had become the chariot driver to carry her and her and his brother-in-law to their home. The demigods, however, did not want Kamsa to be affectionate toward Devaki and therefore from an unseen position they encouraged Kamsa to offend her. Moreover, the six sons of Marichi had been cursed to take birth from the womb of Devaki and upon being killed by Kamsa they would be delivered. When Devaki understood that Kamsa would be killed by the Supreme Personality of God who would appear from her womb, she felt great joy. Okay, so then then it says <clears throat> Where am I? Marichi. One twenty two, one twenty three. 122, 123. Okay. Some of their relatives, however, <clears throat> began to follow 
Kamsa's principles enact in his service. After Kamsa, the son that killed the six sons of Devaki, this is at 10, 2, 5, and 6. A plenary portion of Krishna appear, entered the, her womb as her seventh child, arousing her pleasure and her lamentation. That plenary portion is celebrated by great sages as Ananta, who belongs to Krishna's second quadruple expansion. <clears throat> Purport. Some of the chief devotees, such as Akura, stayed with Kamsa to satisfy them, him. This they did for various purposes. They all expected the Supreme Personality of Godhead to appear as the child as soon as Devaki's other children were killed by Kamsa, and they were eagerly awaiting his appearance. By remaining in Kamsa's association, they would be able to see the Supreme Personality of Godhead take birth and display his childhood pastimes. And occurred later to go to Vrindavan to bring Krishna and Balaram to Mathura. The word Paryupasate is significant because it indicates that some devotees wanted to stay near Kamsa in order to see all these pastimes of the Lord. The six children killed by Kamsa had formerly been sons of Marichi, but because of having been cursed by a Brahmana, they were obligated to take birth as grandsons of Hiranyakashipu. Kamsa had taken birth as Kalanami, and he was, and he was obliged to kill his own sons. This was a mystery. As soon as the sons of Devaki were killed, they would return to their original place. The devotees wanted to see this also. Generally speaking, no one kills his own nephews, but Kamsa was so cruel that he did so without hesitation. Another Sankarshan belongs to the second Chaturvyuha or Kajrupa expansion. This is the opinion of experienced commentators. Yes, Prabhu. Okay, 1085, 48, and 49. Because of that improper act, they immediately entered a demoniac form of life. What improper act? And thus they took birth as sons of Hiranyakashipu. Laughing at Brahma. The goddess Yogamaya then took them away from Hiranyakashipu. Okay, again. Because of that improper act, they immediately entered a demoniac form of life, and thus they took birth as sons of Hiranyakashipu. The goddess Yogamaya then took them away from Hiranyakashipu, and they were born again from Devaki's womb. After this, O king, Kamsa murdered them. Devaki still laments for them, thinking of them to be her sons. These same sons of Marichi are now living here with you. Purport, Acharya's Sridhar Swami and Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur explain that after taking Marichi's six sons from Hiranyakashipu, Lord Krishna's Yogamaya first made them pass through one more life as children of another great demon, Kalanami. Then she finally transferred them to the womb of Devaki. Vishnu, the sinful act, immediately they were put into the womb of the wife of an Asura. Hiranyakashipu jata means born of Hiranyakashipu, is used in this case to indicate closeness of relationship rather than as direct sons. Ne? Since they were born as the sons of the wife of Kalanami, the purport of Jiva Goswami to 10, 2, 4 through 5 makes this clear because it refers this verse, it refers 
to this verse, he gives an alternate explanation as well, that being born of Hiranyakashipu means they were born as his sons in another kalpa. You still listening? Kalpa. He also mentions he also mentions Kalanemi as the son of Hiranyakashipu, but in the Bhagavatam only four sons are mentioned and not him. The translator has put him as the son of Hiranyaksha. Vaishnav Adidan mentions him as son of Hiranyakashipu. I have further investigated and other texts say Kalanemi, this is the voice of Banamarj, was the son of Arochana, son of Prahlad, who was the grand who is right? Question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. They were then taken by Yogamaya to the womb of Devaki in order to kill. Verification. They were there. They were then taken by Yogamaya to the womb of Devaki in order to kill Kamsa. Devaki is lamenting for her sons. They, these, are with you. Pointing with four fingers are with you. Brought by the supreme devotee Bali to see the Lord. They were there in the front of the Lord. Jiva Goswami says he explained they were born to demons. In the commentary on the second chapter of the tenth canto, is explained how they were born to Hiranyakashipu. Krishna explains his proposal in two and a half verses. First, he speaks with compassion. She laments because they were her own sons. They could not be hidden. Jokingly, he says, they are now here. They were placed near Bali, his great devotee, who is omniscient, so that Bali could see the Lord. The plot thickens. Sanatana Goswami says, they were actually born to Kalanemi, who is Hiranyakashipu's son. In that sense, they were born from Hiranyakashipu. This is explained in Harivamsha and also at the beginning of the second chapter. Details are given in Harivamsha but are not given here because it would expand the commentary greatly. O king, you know all this. Devaki laments about their destination because they were her sons. Please give them back. They are under your control. Speaking to Bali. They are near you now. They, are, they were placed near Bali, the great devotee who is omniscient so that Bali could see the Lord. That's what I'm talking about. And then 128, 129. Here only. Here itself. Okay, here, symbolically, Mother Devaki's constant fear of Kamsa was purifying her. A pure devotee should always fear material association. And in this way, all the asuras of material would be killed, as the Shad Garbasuras were killed by Kamsa. It is said that from the mind, Marichi appears. In other words, Marichi is an incarnation of the mind. Marichi has six sons, Kama, Krodha, Loba, Moha, and Matsurya. Lust, anger, greed, illusion, madness, and anger. The Supreme Personality of God, it appears in pure devotional service. This is confirmed in the Vedas. Bhaktir Ivainam Darshayati. 
Only bhakti can bring one in contact with the Supreme Personality of Godhead. The Supreme Personality of Godhead appeared from the womb of Devaki, and therefore Devaki symbolically represents bhakti. And Kamsa symbolically represents material fear. When a pure devotee always fears material association, his real position of bhakti is manifested, and he naturally becomes uninterested in material enjoyment. When the six sons of Marichi are killed by such fear, and one is freed from material contamination, within the womb of bhakti, the Supreme Personality of Godhead appears. The seventh pregnancy of Devaki signifies the appearance of the Supreme Personality of Godhead after the six sons, Kama, Krodha, Loba, Moha, Sarya, are killed. The Shesha incarnation creates a suitable situation for the appearance of the Supreme In other words, when one awakens his natural Krishna consciousness, Lord Krishna appears. This is the explanation given by Srila Vishwanath Chakravarti. What? That verse, sir, is 10 to 8. Case. Any other um, reflections or questions? Very important section. Prabhu. Microphone. What is this uh, Lord Brahma's action? Uh, I mean, it, uh, what it happened? Uh, can you elaborate on that one? It's very. Look up the rare, verse. Tenth canto uh, says. See, uh, never such unusual, uh, you know. I shouldn't say behavior. It's more about I don't know. Say leela or how do we name it? How do how do we understand that? The, Srila Bhakti Siddhanta answers that question. The verse from the eleventh canto, which says that that the, the the activities of great controllers are not ordinary, and when we see some uh, um, indiscretion in them, we shouldn't criticize or consider it in a, a, to be your devotional service because they're beyond the the ordinary rules and regulations. And Prabhupada uh, took that stance very heavily when people, you know, started bringing up about Brahma and his so-called indiscretion and that, you know, you can't criticize Brahma. He's not in the same category. He's a, he's a controller. And then he also says in one place that because these controllers are in contact, their, their um, incarnation with the three modes of material nature Sometimes because of their connection to those modes, they, they act in ways that seem a little bit uh, strange. Maybe it's not in the 10th canto or 11th. And they do that for the purpose. And they do that for the purpose of showing us what not to do. And um, Sanatana Goswami mentions in the uh, Bhagavatam that sometimes persons who are actually in very advanced states of consciousness purposefully uh, do something wrong just to show an example of what not to do to others. Uh, 
he mentions Bharat. Yes. And uh, does he mention Brahma in that? No. Oh, but Bharat anyway. Maharaj. He mentioned Bharat Maharaj as an example, but he said there are others. But he, he just quoted Bharat Maharaj as one example. Prabhu. Just like <clears throat> reminds me, it's kind of a sensitive topic, um, but uh, with Vaishnavas and senior Vaishnavas, and not judging them on material level, sometimes their activities also can be bewildering to me, and uh, mine can to different conclusions. And so my experiences is very important. Not to, um, not to jump to conclusions and, and judgments on senior Vaishnavas. There's one part in the in the um, Chaitanya Bhagavat when there's um, arguments going on between Lord Yananda and Advaita, then the author says. Anyone who gets involved and tries to take sides, then his devotional service will be ruined. And the one should he shouldn't get take sides when there's a, a argument between great Vaishnavas. And Prabhupada wrote a letter to uh, Treyish Rishi, Trey Rishi in 1972, February 4th. You can look it up, and there. Trey uh, Rishi was finding some faults with others, turned out to be GBC man, um, and Prabhupada answered it in a very interesting way. He said, actually, it's the nature of a living entity to have some kind of fault. And he said, even in the spiritual world, there's some kind of competition or what appears to be fault, but uh, there's, kind of, you know, but they, like, even came out of the, the Example of Krishna, who once was so bewildered by looking at Radharani that he tried to milk, milk the bull instead of the cow. You know, so therefore, the conclusion that he came to was that we shouldn't take uh, differences of opinion and seeming dif difficulties seriously, and we should look for the good qualities. And he, said, he made a very strong statement. He said, "There is no utopia." in the sense that there's no place without any fault. And if if we have impersonal tendencies, we will uh, try to find a place where there's no fault and we can't find it, then we'll want to either go away or we'll, we'll want to uh, come to an impersonal conclusion. And then he then by saying that uh, all the devotees, not just the great senior devotees and great devotees, but all the devotees, to be uh, great souls, anybody who's even trying to, you know, worship Krishna. So you, this is a very good uh, letter. We we call it the Utopia letter, and it's it, it's a long letter and it's got a lot of more detail. But I just give you a very, you know, abstract of a letter, a big letter for you to read. Well, there is a section it's in the Bhagavad February February fourth, uh, nineteen seventy two to. There's a section of the Bhagavatam that mentions not criticizing or praising anyone because the w universe works in a uniform way. However, 
the Acharya said that if someone's presenting siddhanta, which is, or they're presenting apasiddhanta, something that's disturbing the dis devotional practice of others, then it's not uh, against the principle of criticism to um, point that out and to point the proper yeah. philosophy out. And this is the verse that Srila uh, Bhaktisiddhanta qu uh, quotes in regard to the... Who asked the question? Huh? Oh. And this is from 103329. Shukadeva Swami says, Dharma viti krama drishta And um, the translation is, The status of powerful controllers is not harmed by any apparent audacious transgression of morality we may see in them, for they are just like fire, which devours everything fit into it and remains unpolluted. Purport, great potent personalities are not ruined by an apparent transgression of moral principles. Sridhar Swami mentions the example of Brahma, Indra, Soma, Vishramrita, and others. A fire devours all that is fed into it, but the fire does not change its nature. Similarly, a great personality does not fall from his position by an irregularity in behavior. In the following verse, however, Shukadeva Goswami makes clear that if we try to imitate the great personalities, the result will be catastrophic. But that is the answer that Srila Bhaktisiddhanta gives to that question. One minute left. Anyone? 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 Thank you very much for joining us for today's reading of Krishna, the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Um, we're going to take up the reading again tomorrow morning at 11 a.m. India time and also again at 3.30 to 6.30. Uh, it's very pleasant weather here at Govardhan and the courtyard is wide open. We have seating. We have an excellent sound system. And uh, lots of people have, have been joining in. We can fit as many as a thousand people in this courtyard. So if you're listening and you want to come on down here, please don't hesitate. Gaur Prabhanande. We're continuing our reading of Krishna, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, taking up at chapter 86, the kidnapping of Subhadra, and Lord Krishna's visiting Shrutadev and Bahulashva. After hearing of the incidents described in the last chapter, King Parikshit, boy, the online audience must be wondering what's really going on here today. After hearing of the incidents described in the last chapter, King Parikshit became more inquisitive to hear about Krishna and his pastimes, and thus he inquired from Shukadeva Goswami how his grandmother, Subhadra, was kidnapped by his grandfather, Arjuna, at the instigation of Lord Krishna. King Parikshit was very eager to learn how his grandfather kidnapped and married his grandmother. Thus, Shukadeva Goswami began to narrate the story as follows. Once upon a time, King Parikshit's grandfather, Arjuna, the great hero was visiting several holy places of pilgrimage, and while thus traveling all over, he happened to come to Prabhashetra, 
In Prabhasta Kshetra, he heard the news that Lord Balaram was negotiating the marriage of Subhadra, the daughter of Arjuna's maternal uncle, Vasudev. Although her father Vasudev, although her father Vasudev and her brother Krishna were not in agreement with him, Balaram was in favor of marrying Subhadra to Duryodhan. Arjuna, however, desired to gain Subhadra's hand himself. As he thought of Subhadra and her beauty, Arjuna became more and more captivated with the idea of marrying her, and with a plan in mind, he dressed himself like a Vaishnava sannyasi, carrying a tree danda in his hand. The Mayavadi sannyasis take one danda or one rod, whereas the Vaishnava sannyasis take three dandas or three rods. The three rods or tree danda indicate that a Vaishnava sannyasi vows to render service to the Supreme Personality of Godhead with his body, mind, and words. The system of Tridanda sannyas has been in existence for a long time, and the Vaishnava sannyasis are called Tridandis, or sometimes Tridandi swamis or Tridandi goswamis. Sannyasis are generally meant to travel all over the country for preaching work, but during the four months of the rainy season in India from July through October, they do not travel but take shelter in one place and remain there without moving. This non-movement of the sannyasi is called Chaturmasya Vrata. When a sannyasi stays in one place for these four months, the local inhabitants of that place take advantage of his presence to become spiritually advanced. Arjuna, in the dress of a Tridandi sannyasi, remained in the city of Dwarka for the four months of the rainy season, devising a plan whereby he could get Subhadra as his wife. None of the inhabitants of Dwarka, including Lord Balaram, could recognize the sannyasi to be Arjuna. Therefore, all of them offered their respects and obeisances to the sannyasi without knowing the actual situation. One day, Balaram invited this particular sannyasi to lunch at his home. Balaramaji very respectfully offered him all kinds of palatable dishes, and the so-called sannyasi was eating sumptuously. While eating at the home of Balaramaji, Arjuna was simply looking at beautiful Subhadra, who was very enchanting to great heroes and kings. Out of love for her, Arjuna's eyes brightened, and he looked at her with glittering eyes. Arjuna decided that somehow or other he would achieve Subhadra as his wife, and his mind became agitated on account of this strong desire. Arjuna, the grandfather of Maharaj Prikshit, was himself extraordinarily beautiful, and his bodily structure was very attractive to Subhadra, who decided within her mind that she would accept only Arjuna as her husband. As a simple girl, she was smiling with great pleasure, looking at Arjuna. Thus Arjuna also became more and more attracted by her. In this way, Subhadra dedicated herself to Arjuna, and he resolved to marry her by any means. He then became absorbed 24 hours a day in thought of how he could get Subhadra as his wife. He was afflicted with the thought of getting Subhadra and had not a moment's peace of mind. Once upon a time, Subhadra, seated on a chariot, came out of the palace fort to see the gods in the temple. Arjuna took this opportunity and with the permission of Vasudev and Devaki, he kidnapped her. After getting on Subhadra's chariot, he prepared himself for a fight. Taking up his bow and holding off with his arrows, the soldiers ordered to check him. Arjuna took Subhadra away. <clears throat> While Subhadra was thus being kidnapped by Arjuna, her relatives and family members began to cry. 
But still he took her, just like a lion takes his prey and departs. When it was disclosed to Lord Balaram that the so-called sannyasi was Arjuna, who had planned such a device simply to take away Subhadra, and that he had actually taken her, he became very angry. Just as the waves of the ocean become agitated on a full moon day, Lord Balaram became greatly disturbed. Can you turn on the switch underneath the chair, please? Lord Krishna was in favor of Arjuna, therefore, along with the other with other members of the family, he tried to pacify Balaram by falling at his feet and begging him to pardon Arjuna. Krishna convinced Lord Balaram that Subhadra was attached to Arjuna, and thus Balaram became pleased to know that she wanted Arjuna as her husband. The matter was settled, and to please the newly married couple, Lord Balaram arranged to send a dowry consisting of an abundance of riches, including elephants, chariots, houses, horses, maidservants, and menservants. Maharaj Prikshit was very eager to hear more about Krishna, and so, after finishing the narration of Arjuna's kidnapping Subhadra, Shukadeva Goswami began to narrate another story as follows. There was a householder brahmana in the city of Matila, the capital of the kingdom of Videha. This brahmana, whose name was Shrutadev, was a great devotee of Lord Krishna. Because he was fully Krishna conscious and always engaged in the service of the Lord, he was completely peaceful in mind and detached from all material attraction. <clears throat> he was very learned and had no desire other than to be fully situated in Krishna consciousness. Although in the order of household life, he never took great pains to earn anything for his livelihood. He was satisfied with whatever he could achieve without much endeavor, and somehow or other he lived in that way. Every day he would get the necessities of life in just the quantity required and not more. That was his destiny. The brahmana had no desire to get more than what he needed, and thus he was a he was peacefully executing the regulative principles of a brahmana's life, as enjoined in the revealed scriptures. Fortunately, the king of Matila was as good a devotee as the brahmana. The name of this famous king was Bahulashva. He was very well established in his reputation as a good king, and he was not at all ambitious to extend his kingdom for the sake of sense gratification. As soon as both the Brahmana and King Bahulashva remained, as such, both the Brahmana and King Bahulashva remained pure devotees of Lord Krishna in Matila. Since Lord Krishna was very merciful toward these two devotees, King Bahulashva and the Brahmana Shrutadev, he one day asked his driver, Daruka, to take his chariot into the capital city of Matila. Lord Krishna was accompanied by the great sages Narada, Vamandev, Atri, Vyasadev, Parusharam, Asita, Aruni, Shukadev, Brihaspati, Kanva, Maitreya, Chevana, and others. Lord Krishna and the sages passed through many villages and towns, and everywhere the citizens would receive them with great respect and offer them articles in worship. To the citizens who came to see the Lord and all the assembled sages, it seemed as though the sun were present along with his various satellite planets. In that journey, Lord Krishna and the sages passed through the kingdoms of Anarta, Dhanva, Kurujangala, Kanka, Matsya, Panchala, Kunti, Madhu, Kekai, Koshala, and Arna. And thus all the citizens of these places, both men and women, could see Lord Krishna face to face. In the they enjoyed celestial happiness 
with open hearts, full of love and affection for the Lord. And when they saw the face of the Lord, it seemed to them that they were drinking nectar through their eyes. When they saw Krishna, all the ignorant misconceptions of their lives dissipated. When the Lord passed through the various countries and the people came to visit them, simply by glancing over them, the Lord would bestow all good fortune upon them and liberate them from all kinds of ignorance. In some places, the demigods would join with the human beings and their glorification of the Lord would cleanse all directions of all inauspicious things. In this way, Lord Krishna gradually reached the kingdom of Videha. When the citizens received the news of the Lord's arrival, they all felt unlimited happiness and came to welcome him, taking gifts in their hands to offer. As soon as they saw Lord Krishna, their hearts immediately blossomed in transcendental bliss, just like lotus flowers upon the rising of the sun. Previously, they had simply heard the names of the great sages, but had never seen them. Now, by the mercy of Lord Krishna, they have the opportunity of seeing both the great sages and the Lord himself. King Bahulashva and the Brahmana Shutadev, knowing well that the Lord had come there just to grace them with favor, <clears throat> immediately fell at the Lord's feet, lotus feet and offered their respect. With folded hands, the king and the Brahmana each simultaneously invited Lord Krishna and all the sages to his home. In order to please both of them, Lord Krishna expanded himself into two and went to the houses of each one of them. Yet neither the king nor the Brahmana could understand that the Lord had gone to the house of the other. Both thought that the Lord had gone only to his house that he and his companions were present in both houses, although both the brahmanas and the king thought he was present in, only, in one house only, is another opulence of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. <clears throat> this opulence is described in the revealed scriptures as Bhaivava Prakash. When Lord Krishna married 16,000 wives, he expanded himself into 16,000 forms, each one of them as powerful as he himself. Similarly, in Vrindavan, when Brahma stole Krishna's calves and cowherd boys, Krishna expanded himself into many new calves and boys. Bahulashva, the king was very intelligent and was a perfect gentleman. <clears throat> he was astonished that so many great sages, along with the Supreme Personality of Godhead, were personally present in his home. He knew perfectly well the conditioned souls engaged in worldly affairs cannot be 100% pure, whereas the Supreme Personality of Godhead and his pure devotees are always transcendental to worldly contamination. Therefore, when they found that the Supreme Personality of Godhead Krishna and all the great sages were at his home, he was astonished and he began to thank Lord Krishna for his causeless mercy. Feeling very much obliged and wanting to receive his guests to the best of his ability, he called for nice chairs and cushions, and Lord Krishna, along with all the sages, sat down very comfortably. At that time, King Bahulashva's mind 
was very restless, not because of any problems, but because of great ecstasy of love and devotion. His heart was filled with love and affection for the Lord and his associates, and his eyes were filled with tears of ecstasy. He washed the feet of his divine guests, and afterward he and his family members sprinkled the water on their own heads. After this, he offered the guests nice flower garlands, sandalwood pulp, incense, new garments, ornaments, lamps, cows, and bulls. In a manner just befitting his royal position, he worshipped each one of them in this way. When all had been fed sumptuously and were sitting very comfortably, Bahulashva came before Lord Krishna and caught his lotus feet. He placed them on his lap and while massaging the feet, with his hands, began to speak about the glories of the Lord in a sweet voice. <clears throat> My dear Lord, you are the super soul of all living entities, and as the witness within the heart, you are cognizant of everyone's activities. Thus we are duty-bound to always think of your lotus feet so that we can remain in a secure position and not deviate from your eternal service. As a result of our continuous remembrance of your lotus feet, you have kindly visited my place personally to favor me with your causeless mercy. We have heard, my dear Lord, that by your various statements you confirm your pure devotees to be more dear to you than Lord Balaram or your constant servitor, the goddess of fortune. Your devotees are dearer to you than your first son, Lord Brahma, and I am sure that you have so kindly visited my place in order to prove your divine statement. I cannot imagine how people can be godless and demoniac even after knowing of your causeless mercy and affection for your devotees who are constantly engaged in Krishna consciousness. How can people who know of these things forget your lotus feet? My dear Lord, it is known to us that you are so kind and liberal that when a person leaves everything just to it. My dear Lord, it is known to us that you are so kind and liberal that when a person leaves everything just to engage in Krishna consciousness, you sometimes give yourself in exchange for that unalloyed service. You have appeared in the Yadu dynasty to fulfill your mission of reclaiming all conditioned souls rotting in the sinful activities of material existence, and this appearance is already famous all over the world. My dear Lord, you are the ocean of unlimited mercy, love, and affection. Your transcendental form is full of bliss, knowledge, and eternity. You can attract everyone's heart by your beautiful form as Shamasundar, Krishna. Your knowledge is unlimited, and to teach all people how to execute devotional service. You have sent your incarnation, Nara Narayana, who is engaged in severe austerities and penances at Badri Narayana. Kindly therefore accept my humble obeisances at your lotus feet. My dear Lord, I beg, you to, re I beg to request you and your companions, the great sages and brahmanas, to remain at my place at least for a few days, so that this family of the famous King Nimi may be sanctified by the dust of your lotus feet.
Lord Krishna, could not refuse the request of his devotee, and thus he remained there for a few days with the sages to sanctify the city of Matila <clears throat> and all its citizens. Meanwhile, the Brahmana Shutadev, simultaneously receiving Lord Krishna and his associates at his home, was transcendentally overwhelmed with joy. After offering his guests nice sitting places, the Brahmana began to dance, waving around his wrap. Shutadev, being not at all rich, offered only mattresses, wood pl wooden planks, straw carpets, and so on to his distinguished guests, Lord Krishna and the sages. But he welcomed them to the best of his ability. He spoke very highly of the Lord and the sages, and he and his wife washed the feet of each one of them. After this, he took the water and sprinkled it over all the members of his family. And although the Brahman appeared very poor, he was at that time most fortunate. While Shutadeva was welcoming Lord Krishna and his associates, he simply forgot himself in transcendental joy. After welcoming the Lord and his companions, according to his ability, he brought fruits, incense, scented water, scented clay, tulsi leaves, kusha, kusha straw, and lotus flowers. They were, not, they were not costly items and could be secured very easily. But because they were offered with devotional love, Lord Krishna and his associates accepted them gladly. The Brahmana's wife cooked simple foods like rice and dal, and Lord Krishna and his followers were very much pleased to accept them because they were offered in devotional love. When Lord Krishna hit and his associates were fed in this way, the Brahmana Shutadev was thinking thus, I have fallen into the deep dark well of household life and in the most unfortunate person. How has it become possible that Lord Krishna, who is the Supreme Personality of Godhead and his associates, the great sages, whose very presence makes a place as sanctified as a pilgrimage site, have agreed to come to my place? While the Brahmana was thinking in this way, the guests finished their lunch and sat back very comfortably. At that time, the Brahmana Shutadeva and his wife, children, and other relatives appeared there to render service to the distinguished guests. While touching the lotus feet of Lord Krishna, the Brahmana began to speak. My dear Lord, he said, you are the Supreme Person, Purushottama, transcendentally situated, beyond the manifested and unmanifested material creation. The activities of this material world and of the conditioned souls have nothing to do with your position. We can appreciate that not only today have you given me your audience, but you are associating with all the living entities as Paramatma since the beginning of creation. This statement of the prominent is very instructive. It is a fact that the Supreme Lord, the personality of God in his Paramatma feature, enters the creation of this material world as Mahavishnu, Garbhadakshay Vishnu, and in a very friendly attitude, the Lord sits along with the conditioned soul in the body. Therefore, every living entity has the Lord with him since the very beginning. But due to his mistaken consciousness of life, 
The living entity cannot understand this. When his consciousness, however, is changed into Krishna consciousness, he can immediately understand how Krishna is trying to assist the conditioned souls to get out of the material entanglement. Shrutadeva continued, My dear Lord, you have entered this material world as if sleeping. A conditioned soul, while sleeping, creates false or temporary worlds in his mind. He becomes busy in many illusory activities, sometimes becoming a king, sometimes being murdered, or sometimes going to an unknown city. And all these are simply temporary affairs. Similarly, your lordship, apparently also in a sleeping condition, enters this material world to create a temporary manifestation, not for your personal necessities, but for the conditioned soul who wants to imitate your lordship as enjoyer. The conditioned soul's enjoyment in the material world is temporary and illusory, and yet the conditioned soul is by himself unable to create such a temporary situation for his illusory enjoyment. To fulfill his desires, although they are temporary and illusory, you enter this temporary manifestation to help him. Thus, from the beginning of the conditioned soul's entering into the material world, you are his constant companion. When, therefore, the conditioned soul comes in contact with a pure devotee and takes to devotional service, beginning with the process of hearing your transcendental pastimes, glorifying your transcendental activities, worshiping your eternal form in the temple, offering prayers to you and engaging in discussion to understand your transcendental position, he gradually becomes freed from the contamination of material existence. And as his heart becomes cleansed of all material dust, you gradually become visible there. Although you are constantly with the conditioned soul, only when he becomes purified by devotional service do you become revealed to him. Others who are bewildered by fruitive activities, either by Vedic injunction or by customary dealings, and who do not take to devotional service are captivated by the external happiness of the bodily concept of life. You are for one... But for you, one who engages in your devotional service, but for one who engages in your devotional service and purifies his heart by constant chanting of your holy name, you are very easily understood as his eternal constant companion. It is said that your lordship sitting in the heart of a devotee gives him direction by which he can very quickly come back home back to you. This direct dictation by you reveals your existence within the heart of the devotee. Only a devotee can immediately appreciate your existence within his heart, whereas for a person who has only a bodily concept of life and is engaged in sense gratification, you always remain covered by the curtain of yoga maya. Such a person cannot realize that you are very near, sitting within his heart. For a non-devotee, you are appreciated only as ultimate death. The difference is like the difference between a cat's carrying its kittens in its mouth and carrying a rat in its mouth. In the mouth of the cat, the rat feels its death, whereas the kittens in the mouth of the cat feel motherly affection. Similarly, you are present to everyone, but the devotee feels you as ultimate cruel death, whereas you are the supreme instructor and philosopher. The atheist, therefore, understands the presence of God as death, but the devotee understands the presence of God always within his heart, takes dictation from you, and lives transcendentally, unaffected by the contamination of the material world, 
I was just thinking about how the cat and the rat it's such a uh hopeful analogy. It's like the cat is uh fearsome to the to the um to the rat. And when he's being moved, it's just the cat's killing it or at least playing with it to get ready to kill it. But when the kitten's moved by the cat, then cat's moving it to safety or to a place where it can be um, nourished or something like that. So devotees that get moved around, but if they've surrendered to Krishna, realize they're in his shelter, then even if they're getting moved around from one place to another, that they know Krishna's ultimate plan is to uh, help them. Wherewithal to carry the kitten in the mouth and and not push down too hard to saw whatever <laughs> to give the kitten the feeling that it's it comfort and when the when the rat's in the mouth he just <coughs> you know like they've all got intelligence crispy critters crispy critters. You are the supreme controller and superintendent of the material nature's activity. The atheistic class of men simply observe the activity but cannot find you as the original background. A devotee, however, can immediately see your hand in every movement of material nature. The curtain of yoga maya cannot cover the eyes of the devotee of your lordship, but it can cover the eyes of the non-devotee. The non-devotee is unable to see you face to face just as the person whose eyes are blocked by the covering of a cloud cannot see the sun. Although persons flying above the cloud can see the sunshine brilliantly as it is. Dear Lord, I offer my respectful obeisances unto you. My dear self-effulgent Lord, I am your eternal servitor. Therefore kindly offer me, kindly, therefore kindly order me, what can I do for you? The soul feels the pangs of material contamination as the threefold miseries, as long as you are not visible to him. And as soon as you are visible by development of Krishna consciousness, all miseries of material existence are simultaneously vanquished. The Supreme Personality of God is naturally very much affectionately inclined to his devotees. When he heard Shrutadeva's prayers of pure devotion, he was very much pleased and immediately caught his hands and addressed him thus. My dear Shrutadeva, all these great sages, brahmanas and saintly persons have been very kind to you by personally coming here to see you. You should consider this opportunity to be a great fortune for you. They are so kind that they are traveling with me, and wherever they go, they immediately make the whole atmosphere as pure as transcendence simply by the touch of the dust of their feet. People are accustomed to go to the temples of God. They also visit holy places of pilgrimage, and after prolonged association with, some, with such activities for many days by touch and by worship, they gradually become purified. But the influence of great sages and saintly persons is so great that by seeing them, one immediately becomes completely purified. 
Moreover, the very purifying potency of pilgrimages or worship of different demigods is also achieved by the grace of saintly persons. A pilgrimage site becomes a holy place because of the presence of the saintly persons. My dear Shutadeva, when a person is born as a brahmana, he immediately becomes the best of all human beings. And of such a brahmana remaining self-satisfied, practices, austerities, studies the Vedas, and engages in my devotional service, as is the duty of a brahmana, or in other words, if a brahmana becomes a Vaishnav, how wonderful is his greatness. My feature of four-handed Narayan is not so pleasing or dear to me as is a brahmana Vaishnav. Brahmana means one well conversant with Vedic knowledge. A brahmana is the insignia of perfect knowledge, and I am the full-fledged manifestation of all gods. Less intelligent men do not understand me, nor do they understand the influence of the Brahmana Vaishnav. They are influenced by the three modes of material nature, and thus they dare to criticize me and my pure devotees. A Brahmana Vaishnav or a devotee already on the Brahminical platform can realize me within his heart. And therefore he definitely concludes that the whole cosmic manifestation and its different features are effects of different energies of the Lord. Thus he has a clear conception of the whole material nature and the total material energy. And in every action, such a devotee sees me only and nothing else. <clears throat> My dear Shudadev, you may therefore accept all these great saintly persons, brahmanas and sages, as my bona fide representatives. By worshipping them faithfully, you will be worshipping me diligently. I consider worship of my devotees to be better than direct worship of me. If someone attempts to worship me directly without worshipping my devotees, I do not accept such worship, even though it may be presented opulence. In this way, both the Brahmana Shrutadeva and the king of Mithila, under the direction of the Lord, worshipped both Krishna and his followers, the great saints and saintly Brahmanas, on an equal level of spiritual importance. Both Brahmana and king ultimately achieved the supreme soul goal of being transferred to the spiritual world. The devotee does not know anyone except Lord Krishna, and Krishna is the most affectionate to his devotee. Lord Krishna remained in Mithila, both at the house of the Brahmana Shutadev and at the palace of King Bahulashwa. And after, after favoring them lavishly by his transcendental instructions, he went back to his capital city, Dwarka. The instruction we receive from this incident is that King Bahulashwa and Shutadev the Brahmana were accepted by the Lord on the same level because both were pure devotees. This is the real qualification for being recognized by the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Because it has become a fashion in this age to be falsely proud of having taken birth in the family of a Chatriya or a Brahmana, we see persons without any qualification other than birth claiming to be a Brahmana or Chatriya or Vaishya. But as stated in the scriptures, 
Kalau Shudra Sambhava. In this age of Kali, everyone is born a Shudra. This is because there is no performance of the purificatory processes known as sangskaras, which begin from the time of the mother's pregnancy and continue up to the point of the individual's death. No one can be classified as a member of a particular caste, especially of a higher caste, Brahmana, Kshatriya, or Vaishya, simply by birthright. If one is not purified by the process of the seed-giving ceremony, or Garbhadana Sangskara, he is immediately classified amongst the Shudras, because only the Shudras do not undergo this purificatory process. Sex life without the purificatory process of Krishna consciousness is merely the seed-giving process of the Shudras or the animals. Krishna consciousness is therefore the best process of purification. By this process, everyone can come to the platform of a Vaishnava, which includes having all the qualifications of a Brahmana. The Vaishnavas are trained to become free from the four kinds of sinful activities, illicit sex, indulgence in intoxicants, gambling, and eating animals. One cannot be on the Brahminical platform without having these preliminary qualifications, and without becoming a qualified Brahmana, one cannot become a pure devotee. Thus ends the Bhaktivedanta purport of the 86th chapter of Krishna, the kidnapping of Subhadra and Lord Krishna's visiting Shutadev and Baalashwa. Srila Prabhupada says that Krishna expanded himself to go to both Shutadev and Baalashwa's homes about sages and brahmanas. And they were also with him. So did he expand? that as them or did they expand themselves? Says here Animal, animal foods. I saw, I saw a photo of a, an insect, I think it was a cockroach or some insect, and it was being held by a little more. Is that good enough? Better? It was being held up by these tweezers. And the, and the headline was, The Food That Can Save the World. Yeah, I couldn't tell whether it was a cockroach or some other insect. But this is going on. They're now serving in some kind of sporting events these things, you know, like, yeah. Crickets and things like that. It was a cricket. It was something. Didn't look like a human being, didn't look like a, any. They say cockroaches will live on even if there's nuclear. <laughs> there you go. Next. And the, this 
prayers there was some reflections on like the material energy uh how like i'm wondering um the importance of like reflecting on material nature and uh, understanding how it works and and like kind of just establishing a firm conception of the material universe and its functioning and uh and and the importance of that in our in our devotional life Hey, I mean, isn't it in every single chapter, in practically all the prayers we've heard all through the, the Krishna book? That's tenth canto. That's not even the first nine. Analysis is there again and again and again. So I think that's a point well taken. I think it must be uh, extremely important, if not essential, for us to understand that. Because why? Because we see not through our eyes but we see through the eyes of knowledge. So if we're going to see everything connected with Krishna, thing that we do, I just heard Srila Prabhupada say this morning, he was having an interview with these uh, Mormons in, in Melbourne in 1976. And they came and they were very nice. They were very sweet. They were very nice. They were saying they were saying every other word out of their mouth was we believe in this and we believe that, and Prabhupada was trying to explain to them that God consciousness is more than just belief, and then he he was saying so what is your idea about God consciousness and all it was is well we believe this and we believe that, and Prabhupada said well no, everything is created by God therefore, rasoham abzikhontea. We all have to drink water every day. Every single one of us has to drink water every day. And if we think that the taste of this water is God, then we become in contact with God automatically. So if we understand the workings of the material nature as it's described, um, then we will be much better situated and able to see uh, God everywhere and always remember Him. And it's there time after time after time after again, all the way through the Bhagavatam, through the Gita, and now in the 10th canto. This is from um, text 26 of this chapter. Wanting to please them both, the Lord accepted both their invitations. Thus he simultaneously went to both homes, and neither could see him entering the other's house. Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur, understanding that both Shrutadeva and Bahulashva wanted him to visit their homes, Krishna manifested himself and all the sages in duplicate forms and entered both houses without the other person seeing it. The king thought, Merciful Krishna has accepted my invitation only and is coming to my house, and Shrutadeva is returning home alone, deprived of the Lord's association. And Shrutadeva thought, Krishna is accepting my invitation, and the king is going home alone. The king and the Brahmin thus manifested two forms. One joyful with Krishna and the other despondent without Krishna. The neighbors of that manifestation of the king who were enjoying Krishna's association went to Shrutadeva's home and saw him unhappy in separation from Krishna. Ah. Similarly, the assistants of Shrutadeva, who was with Krishna, saw the king alone in his home, despondent without Krishna. <laughs> That's amazing.
Why, why would that happen that, that would manifest that they would see the other person not with Krishna? I'm wondering. Narlila. 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 He's acting as if he's a human being. Huh? Say that again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or in other words, the second place is where the sages and the the last day or so when all the sages were assembled in one place. It's very heartening when they all come together like that. There's a long list of all the sages. When was the the time before the chapter we heard? Vasudev. Recently with Vasudev. Yeah. Yeah, when they were doing the the sacrifices. sacrifices. Yeah. All the sages came there as well. Yeah. And it's just such a lovely scene with Krishna and all the sages together. And Krishna showing so much deference to the sages and so forth. Um, yeah, what else? Any other thing? Yes? I guess it just reminds me of <coughs> the Brihat Bhagavatamrita when uh, Gopakumar sees the sages visiting Africa he's at but then he's like who are these people (laughs) everywhere he's at there's like more elevated people and just thinking these sages coming to the like such a profound experience just seeing the sages on Krishna Mm. Mm. I was astonished by the statement that said we have heard my dear Lord that by your various statements you confirm your pure devotees to be more dear to you than Lord Balram or your constant servitor, the Goddess of Fortune. And Balram and Goddess of Fortune are so close to him, but he still considers pure devotees yeah. more dear. It was definitive in this chapter. That, uh, in fact, uh, there's a Sanskrit verse. That says, where Krishna says that the uh, worship of the Vaishnav is is more important than worshiping me. Sabhakta puja bhyadika. I think that's from this chapter where he says. 11th canto. 11th canto, I think. Oh, it's 11th? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. Anyway, it was said here also that the worship of the Vaishnav. Or my devotees is more important than worshiping me. A point he makes, but, but and then, then if somebody uh, works worships me with opulence directly, I'm not so much inclined to accept it. Yeah, mad bhakta puja bhyadika. Mad bhakta puja bhyadika. Yeah. Okay. One last point. I'm wondering, what is? exactly mean to worship a devotee as it, like. well Prabhupada put it that is to follow the order of the spiritual master it's the best way to, to worship the, the guru find out what the order is and then 
fulfill the desire of the spiritual master by following the order. I mean, like the festival of fruits and flowers you can offer, mm -hmm. but if you actually fulfill the desire of the guru to spread Christian consciousness as an example or develop the Sankirtan movement, then that's the best kind of worship. <clears throat> We're moving on to chapter 87. Prayers by the personified Vedas. Hold on to your fasten seatbelt. Here we go. <clears throat> King Parikshit inquired from Shukadev Goswami about a very important topic in understanding transcendental subject matter. His question was, since Vedic knowledge generally deals with the subject matter of the three qualities of the material world, how then can it approach the subject matter of transcendence, which is beyond the approach of the three material mo modes? Since the mind is material and the vibration of words is a material sound, how can the Vedic knowledge expressing by material sound the thoughts of the material mind approach transcendence. Description of a subject matter necessitates describing of emanation, its qualities, and its activities. Such description can be possible only by thinking with the material mind and by vibrating material words. Brahman, or the Absolute Truth, has no material qualities. But our power of speaking does not go beyond the material qualities. How then can Brahman, the Absolute Truth, be described by your words? I do not see how it is possible to understand transcendence from such expressions of material sound. The purpose of King Pariksit's in inquiry was to ask from Shukadeva Goswami whether the Vedas ultimately describe the Absolute Truth as impersonal or as personal. Understanding of the Absolute Truth progresses in three features. Impersonal Brahman, Paramatma, localized in everyone's heart, and at last, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, Krishna. The Vedas deal with the three departments of activities. One is called Karmakanda, activities under Vedic injunction, which gradually purify one to understand his real position. The next is Gyanakanda, the process of understanding the Absolute Truth by speculative methods. Is Upasanakanda, or worship of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, and sometimes of the demigods also. The worship of the demigods recommended in the Vedas is ordered with the understanding of the demigods' relationship to the Supreme Personality of Godhead, to the Personality of Godhead. The Supreme Personality of Godhead has many parts and parcels. Some are called swangshas, or his personal expansions, and some are called vibhinangshas, the living entities. All such expansions, both swangshas and vibhinangshas, are emanations from the, from the original personality of Godhead. 
Svangsha expansions are called Vishnu Tattva, whereas the Viminangsha expansions are called Jiva Tattva. The different demigods are Jiva Tattva. The conditioned souls are generally put into the activities of the material world for sanctification. Therefore, as stated in the Bhagavad Gita, to regulate those who are very much addicted to different kinds of sense gratification, the worship of demigods is sometimes recommended. For example, for persons very much addicted to meat-eating, the Vedic injunction recommends that after worshipping the form of goddess Kali and sacrificing a goat, not any other animal, under karma-kanda regulation, the worshippers may be allowed to eat meat. The idea is not to encourage one to eat meat, but to allow one who insists on eating meat to eat it under certain restricted conditions. Therefore, worship of the demigods is not worship of absolute truth. But by worshiping the demigods, one gradually comes to accept the Supreme Personality of Godhead in an indirect way. This indirect acceptance is described Bhagavad Gita as avidi. Avidi means not bona fide. Since demigod worship is not bona fide, the impersonalists stress concentration on the impersonal feature of the absolute truth. King Pariksit's question was, which is the ultimate target of Vedic knowledge? The, this concentration on the impersonal feature of the absolute truth, or concentration on the personal feature. After all, both the impersonal and the personal feature of the Supreme Lord are material conception. The impersonal feature of the Brahman effulgence is but the rays of the personal body These rays of the personal body of Krishna are cast all over the creation of the Lord and the portion of the effulgence which is covered by the material cloud, is called the created cosmos of the three material bodies, sattva, rajas, and tamas. How can persons who are within this clouded portion, called the material world, conceive of the absolute truth by the speculative method? <clears throat> In answering King Pariksit's question, Shukadev Goswami replied that the Supreme Personality of Godhead has created the mind, senses, and living force of a living entity for the purpose of sense gratification and transmigration from one kind of body to another, as well as for the purpose of allowing liberation from the material conditions. In other words, one can utilize the senses, mind, and living force for sense gratification and transmigration from one body to another, or for the matter of liberation. The Vedic injunctions are there just to give the conditioned souls the chance for sense gratification under regulative principles, and therefore also to give them the chance for promotion to higher conditions of life. Ultimately, if the consciousness is purified, one comes to his original position, and goes back home, back to Godhead. The living entity is intelligent. One therefore has to utilize his intelligence over the mind, 
and the senses. When the mind senses, when the mind and senses are purified by the proper use of intelligence, then the conditioned soul is liberated. Otherwise, if the intelligence is not properly utilized in controlling the senses and mind, the conditioned soul continues to transmigrate from one kind of body to another, simply for sense gratification. Another point clearly stated in the answer of Shukadeva Goswami is that it is the mind, senses, and intelligence of the individual living entity that the Lord created. It is not stated that the living entities themselves were ever created. Just as the shining particles of the sun's rays always exist with the sun, the living entities exist eternally as parts and parcels of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. But just as the sun rays are sometimes covered by a cloud, which is created by the sun, so the conditioned souls, although eternally existing as the of the Supreme Lord, are sometimes put within the cloud of the material concept of life in the darkness of ignorance. The whole Vedic process is to alleviate that darkened condition. Ultimately, when the senses and mind of the conditioned soul being Ultimately, when the senses and mind of the conditioned being are fully purified, he comes to his original position called Christian consciousness, and that is liberation. Not <laughs> 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 <laughs>